0: Hi everyone, welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight our topic is equine tumors, sarcoids, melanomas, and more. And it's brought to you by our sponsor, Kinetic Vet. Lumps and bumps on our horses can range from unsightly to deadly. They can cause a horse to lose value, and they can be painful. And we as horse owners usually want them to go away because we want our horse to be beautiful. Uh, To help us better understand the causes and treatments of common tumors, we're joined this evening by Dr. David Levine, who's a surgeon at University of Pennsylvania's New Bolton Center, and Dr. Susan White, who's an internal medicine specialist from University of Georgia. Welcome, doctors.
1: Thank you. Welcome, everybody. Thank you.
0: Before we get into our full introductions on the doctors, I want to let everyone know who's listening that we have uh, compiled resources for you at thehorse.com slash skin tumors. Uh, We received a lot of questions tonight, and there's a lot of difference in tumors and variation, and so we thought that those resources would help you. If you don't find the exact answer you're looking for tonight, uh, maybe those resources could help you out. And with that, let's go ahead and talk to Dr. Levine. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience dealing with uh, tumors in horses?
1: Uh, Sure. So I've been at the University of Pennsylvania. This is my 13th year here as a surgeon. And um, I kind of do a lot of the tumor work in horses. And some of my research actually has been uh, in in treatment of sarcoids as well. So I spend a lot of time kind of on the front lines of the surgical treatment of tumors.
0: And Dr. White, can you tell us about your interest in dermatology and equine skin tumors?
2: Yes, I've been in the southeastern part of the United States for almost uh, four decades now and skin problems of all types are extremely common. Um, I've had a long-standing interest in dermatology and tumors are a quite frequent part of um, skin lesions that uh, clients bring to veterinarians' attention. And I guess I would say that I'm more interested or perhaps um, Dr. Levine is helpful in many of the tumors need surgical removal or surgical debulking. I'm probably more focused on mechanistic action of chemotherapeutic drugs and other treatments uh, for tumors.
0: Okay. I want to give our listeners a quick review of the Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. Uh, if you have a question and you're listening live, you can go ahead and send that into us. Um, also, if you would like clarifications on one of the doctor's answers, um, go ahead and send us questions about those as well. Um, but For now, we're going to go ahead and jump in and get started. Um, Dr. Levine, first, I want to ask you about the different roles that a surgeon and an internal medicine specialist play in diagnosing and treating tumors. Dr. White uh, alluded to this, but can you tell us how how the different uh, specialties can come together in managing tumors?
1: Well, I'd like to echo what Dr. White said. You know, oftentimes, uh, various skin lesions and things will come in through the dermatology service and the surgeon will play a role at biopsying some of those, uh, especially the larger ones if they end up being tumors. And then a lot of the, uh, treatments besides having some, you know, surgical debridement or surgical removal will have chemotherapy involved as well. So it's usually a team effort, uh, at least here on removing tumors, um, uh, You know, that's kind of my job, and then some of the aftercare, especially the chemotherapeutics, uh, the internists and dermatologists also uh, uh, play a big role in that.
0: And, Dr. White, do you have anything to add?
2: No, I think Dr. Levine said it very well. Thank you.
0: Um, Dr. White, our next question is for you, and it's from Melissa in Maine, and she wants to know what kind of growths or tumors warrant a call to our vet.
2: I would say that any lump or bump that interferes with function, such as movement over a joint or eating, um, any lump or bump that that has an open sore that doesn't heal, and also any lump or bump that continues to grow. And one of the best ways to determine how rapidly something is changing when you're looking at the horse every day is to take a photograph, put a ruler or some measurement device next to it, date it, and then you can take another photograph later on and that way you have a very precise record in what this mass is doing. And that's also something that's very helpful to your veterinarian when you have them come and examine the horse.
0: And Dr. Levine, I have a question from Sandy in California, and it's the big question on sarcoids. What causes sarcoids in
1: horses? I I wish it was an easy answer, and uh, I'll I'll try to sum it up. We're not exactly positive of everything revolving sarcoids. Sarcoids are one of the most common uh, equine skin tumors. Uh, We see a lot of it. Uh, But when it comes to what exactly causes it, there's a lot of research out there, and some of the current theories are, that it's a mixture of either a wound or some sort of trauma to the skin that allows a virus in, bovine papillomavirus, and like papillomaviruses in people that can transport a tumor-like growth, there's also some evidence out there that the genetic makeup of the horse makes them predisposed to being able to get that infection. So it's a little multifactorial that it's probably viral-initiated through maybe some sort of skin wound, fly bite, etc., and that horses are more or less susceptible to that virus. And that, that's kind of the, the running theory nowadays.
0: So, Dr. Levine, if a horse has a sarcoid, is it likely that that horse will get more sar- sarcoids?
1: I, I'd say that sarcoids in general, horses can get multiple, and I think that once you have a horse that's predisposed to getting sarcoids, if they have a wound or an injury somewhere else, uh, oftentimes they can get sarcoids there. So I I do think that some horses are more predisposed to getting sarcoids, and depending on how robust their immune system is to it, some horses get sarcoids much worse than other horses. So some horses will get one small one, where some horses will develop it all over.
0: Dr. White, could you describe to us a little bit what sarcoids can look like and how we can differentiate them from uh, other possible causes of tumors?
2: Um, Well, sarcoids can masquerade as a variety of presentations. There is actually six classifications of sarcoids um, based on their visual appearance. They can be flat and hairless. Uh, They can look like uh, a wart, a sort of cauliflower, hard, keratinized growth. Um, They can be a big mass that is actually under the hair, haired skin, and all you see is the mass, but the hair and skin over it um, looks normal. Um, They can look like granulation tissue or proud flesh. And they can be any combination uh, and permutation of those presentations. Um, As Dr. Levine said, um, every horse is different, and some horses will have multiple uh, sarcoids that grow rapidly, and other horses will have one or two flat, or little bumpy ones with some hair loss that may be stable for years. And I think that's another reason why keeping your photographic record is a, is a good plan as far as um, trying to characterize what that tumor is actually doing in the horse.
0: So to that question of finding out if it's definitively a sarcoid, what options do horse owners and their vets have to figure that out?
2: The definitive diagnosis is made from histological evaluation of a biopsy. And as we go into different treatment modalities, many of them really shouldn't be tried unless you're absolutely positively certain that you are treating a specific tumor, a sarcoid or any other tumor. And as Dr. Levine says, that's a lot of what he does at Penn is he's biopsying tumors so that they can be diagnosed microscopically.
0: And that leads us to our first question. Live question of the evening and Dr. White, I'm gonna give this one to you. And Chris is listening live and she has a mare that developed an occult sarcoid during pregnancy. Are there certain treatments that should be avoided for a nursing brood mare? Mm,
2: that's probably. A good question, huh? <laughs> yeah, probably not, but you know, that's it depends on what the treatment is, you know. I don't know what the uh, distribution, for example, of cisplatin, which is a chemotherapeutic agent that's often used, um, either injected in an oil immersion or uh, placed in the tumor in a biodegradable small bead. Um, It is dispersed from the tissue, but I would probably have to look into that. Jump in here, Dr. Levine, if you know what the... um, Elimination uh, profile of like cisplatin is whether it's passed in milk or not.
1: I'm, I'm with you in that it's probably a very low risk for some of the chemotherapeutics, but there are other sarcoid treatments that don't involve chemotherapeutics uh, that could be used safely in pregnant mares for sure, whether it be surgical removal with cryotherapy or uh, you know, laser therapy. Um, we do a lot of the uh, autologous vaccination, which also would be, you know, absolutely safe in a pregnant mare. But you know, it's one of those things. I agree with Dr. Wright. I'd have to look into it a little more, but I'd be—I'm always on the cautious side and would probably do something that's um, one of those non-chemotherapeutic routes in a pregnant mare, or wait till she foals and then take care of it. Yeah. So- exactly. Yeah,
0: and so Chris's question is about the nursing foal. And I'm wondering if a sarcoid were to pop up during pregnancy, uh, when would you need when would there be an urgency to take care of it if there is a foal? Is that something that could wait until after the foal was weaned? Um, Dr. White?
2: It depends on how rapidly it's growing. If it's an occult sarcoid that you know, nickel-sized and and it has lots of hair and maybe a few tiny bumps in the skin, you can probably wait. Characteristically, occult uh, sarcoids and um, uh, the varicose, the really small varicose ones are typically slow-growing. Slow um, I've owned horses myself where I've looked at occult sarcoids for years on end, and they never really... Um, grew more than a millimeter or so a year, and if they're in a benign location, I've let them be. So I don't think that's a problem, as far as um, if it's that type of sarcoid. If it's one of the fibroblastic ones that looks like granulation tissue or an expanding mass under the skin, uh, that's, a, that's a whole different story. And and this is the difficulty when we talk about how can I treat it, because treatment is very dependent on the type of sarcoid, on the circumstances of the horse, um, and on, in many instances, on the expertise of the of the veterinarian that's um, working with you with your horse. We all have different talents, and many of the treatments, um, you know, it's somewhat of an art still. I think Dr. Levine is the world's expert in the, uh, tumor removal and then treating that piece of tumor and then putting it back in the horse as a means to stimulate immune response, but not everybody could maybe do it as well as him.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that, but <laughs> I'll say thanks.
0: Um, Dr. Levine, with that being brought up, can you explain to us a little bit about that that work you're doing and, and the prospects for that in the future in, in treating sarcoids in yeah. horses?
1: I mean, quickly, I, I, I didn't come up with the idea. Uh, I heard about it uh, at uh, an uh, association of equine practitioners meeting where someone had tried removing a sarcoid, uh, you know, mo- modifying the tumor and injecting it back into the horse to create an immune response. And the more research I did into it and thinking about how well vaccines work for papillomaviruses like this bovine papillomavirus, it, it was intrigued me, and I tried it on a very challenging sarcoid of mine about eight years ago and lo and behold all the sarcoids on the horse went away and I was very surprised by it to say the least and we've done it in a lot of horses now and published our research this past year on the first 20 or so horses that we did it on and it does seem in some horses and again as Dr. White said the circumstances around the the different types of sarcoids how many they are do play a role but you know we've been able to get you know, close to a 70% response rate where we re- remove one sarcoid and all of the sarcoids on the horse go away about six months later after the immune system kicks in, which is uh, exciting work. But as soon as you see that any treatment of any disease has 12 to 13 different types of treatments out there, it means that none of them work great. So it is still a bit of an art on what people have used successfully, what they're comfortable with, and I usually still use a variety of treatments on sarcoids in addition to the autologous vaccination, whether it be surgical debulking, uh, cisplatin, uh, Aldera cream. You know, There's lots of treatments out there, and I will still use a variety of them along with the autologous vaccination. Okay.
2: Um, and uh, no. the, the other thing I, I think before we close is if, be very wary of wounds that initially heal and then break open. And also, if you are treating any skin tumor, um, a uh, recheck examination by your veterinarian every three to six weeks is also very important. um, So that if they do reoccur, that uh, appropriate therapy can be initiated sooner rather than later.
0: So, Dr. White, we have a question from our live audience. Alex wants to know if, it will be possible to have a vaccine against bovine papillomavirus in the near future. Uh, do you have any updates or any, any knowledge about that research?
2: Yeah, you know, the, it's not the whole replicating virus like you have if you have a common cold in it. It's a replicating virus and then you sneeze it off on somebody next to you and then they get the cold. The the, the What they find in the sarcoid cells is um, the epitope of the bovine papilloma virus, which essentially um, has an effect on cell growth regulation and thus um, production of the tumor cells. And there are a variety of people that are working on various avenues as far as uh, developing a vaccine, Um, but I don't know that you're going to see this anytime soon. And one reason for that is although if you have a horse with a sarcoid, it's very important. In reality, less than one horse out of every thousand ever has a sarcoid. And um, the reality of research is funding. And so, uh, although the viral epitope influencing of cellular processes is an important area for not just horses and sarcoids, but a whole variety of tumors, I'm not sure that a specific horse vaccine is anywhere close to being available.
0: Okay. Dr. Levine, we have a follow-up question from our live audience. Uh, Celeste is listening, and she wants to know where she can find your published research.
1: Uh, that was published in the Canadian Veterinary Journal, I believe, in February of 2016.
0: And I believe, Celeste, if you go to thehorse.com and you search for Dr. Levine's name, you will find uh, the summaries that we have done on his research as well. So go ahead and take a look on on thehorse.com if you're looking for um, an overview of his research, but if you're looking for the in-depth stuff, uh, go to the journal. Um, Let's go ahead, and Dr. Levine, the next question is for you, and it's from Marjorie in Ontario, Canada, and she wants to know if all gray horses will end up developing melanomas, and is there a way to predict how aggressive or numerous the tumors will be?
1: Uh, I wish there was a way to predict how aggressive and numerous they will be, but there is not currently a way to predict that, and just like sarcoids, as Dr. White stated before, some horses will have small melanomas their entire life and never have an issue, and others will be small for a long period of time and then grow rapidly, and it's hard to predict how they're going to react, and all gray horses do not develop melanomas, although the gene that codes for horses to become gray is also involved with coding for melanomas. So melanoma in horses, uh, I get it often where people can be very terrified because melanoma in people can be uh, extraordinarily deadly, as well as melanoma in dog can be very deadly. Uh, many gray horses and I think some the, the last numbers that have been up there somewhere between 70 to 80 percent of gray horses at some point in their life will develop melanomas even if they're small ones that you don't even notice it oftentimes is not uh, it can be you know uh, very dangerous to a horse depending where they develop and how they develop uh, but most of the time they can be more of a nuisance than they are deadly and depending on where they are having your veterinarian look at them And again, as Dr. White said, that photographic, you looking at them every day can be a little deceiving, but if you take pictures either, you know, every couple of months just to see what they look like, it's easier to compare and see, are they growing, are they not growing? And uh, keeping track of them in a photo journal is really a great way to go when you're dealing with gray horses and melanomas.
0: Okay. Um, I have a helper who has pulled up, uh, Dr. Levine, the uh, the URL for our coverage of your research on the horse. So if anyone's listening and is interested in that, it's at thehorse.com slash 37236. Um, So go ahead and take a look at that if you're interested. We have another question from our live audience. Dr. White, I'm going to give this one to you. Uh, changing subjects a little bit to warts. So Cheryl's listening live and she wants to know, how do you get rid of warts in horses?
2: Uh, Well, warts are also caused by a papilloma virus, but this virus is an equine um, papilloma virus. Most horses that have warts have them on their nose and their lips, and they may crawl up other parts of their face and maybe on their chest. Um, If they're less than three years of age or equal to three years of age when they get warts, the vast majority, way up there in the 90-some-odd percentile of them, will uh, resolve on their own within three months. Um, There is and has been what I kind of call equine legends um, in the past of various uses of the bovine papilloma vaccine and of crushing a certain number of warts on the animal um, as aiding in um, resolution of the warts. But both of those methods have been shown not to work in controlled scientific studies. Uh, If you have a horse that has a very large number of them and they're getting up to be five or six years of age and they've persisted for a long period of time, then that's a whole different story. Um, I'd like to know what our listener is uh, referring to. Is this a young horse that she has?
0: So, Cheryl, if you're listening, go ahead and let us know um, if you're talking about a young horse or an older horse. I know from my own personal experience, it's like your yearling that you're just about to go start showing and halter, and then they get these horrible warts on their face before you want to take them to the horse show, or every young horse in the barn gets them uh, within weeks of each other. Is that, Dr. White, a typical experience for horse owners?
2: Yes, if you've got a barn full of weanlings or um, yearlings, it is transmissible, and um, flies play a big part in this, uh, as I imagine that humans, as far as handling these horses and grooming utensils and everything else, could play a role, but probably flies because the virus, just as in sarcoids, has to have a way into the skin, and it is... um, Very disconcerting when you have planned a show career for your youngster, but at that age, you know, in a couple of months, they resolve on their own.
0: So once they resolve, does that horse have an immunity to the warts in the future then?
2: Yes, yes, they don't come back.
0: And we've heard back from Cheryl and Cheryl says that her horse isn't one of these youngsters she has a nine-year-old and they just showed up the warts did about a month ago so does that change your answer at all uh, Dr. White?
2: Um, well in that case if the horse is nine and it has a number of these um, proliferative cauliflower looking little bumps on it I would highly recommend that she have her veterinarian take a couple of those off and have them evaluated histologically to find out if they really are um, warts to the equine papillomavirus. Um, there's a variety of molecular methods now to not only look at the cells, but to look at viral etiology as well. And so that would be the first step, is to find out if that's really what they are, if that hasn't been done. And then, um, you know, I'd hate to, uh, prejudice her to what her own veterinarian might do, but there are a number of immunotherapies that's, that are used sometimes in sarcoids, and that would probably be the way to go. Okay. At That do- would be my first guess.
0: Dr. White, um, Dr. Levine has already touched on that there are some genetic pre, uh, predispositions in, in horses that might lead to them being more likely to end up with, with tumors. Linda in Oregon wants to know, Are certain or specific breeds of horses more susceptible to developing tumors? Uh,
2: As far as uh, sarcoids go, yes. In the literature, you can find that Arabians, Appaloosas, and Quarter horses uh, are overrepresented in the population of horses that have sarcoids. In the case of quarter horses, that's a little iffy because there's such a greater number of quarter horses in our country than any other breed. But one thing I'd like to say about the immune system is is we tend to think of the immune system as being this entity. And, and, and I think people have the idea that it could be one way or another, but the immune system is very, very complex. And just like none of us look exactly alike, in the same way, a whole variety of minor differences in expressions of the immune system and how it reacts to foreign infectious agents or foreign proteins can be very variable. And the more we learn about genetics, the more we realize that it does have an influencing role. But in the case of virally-induced tumors, it's a combination of factors. So, I will say this, that if you have um, a horse that is one of those that is covered with sarcoids from one end to the other, or gets warts and they persist for six months, that if you have progeny out of that horse, you're probably more likely than, than uh, a horse with none of those problems to have offspring with the same problem. And that is related to the genetics of the immune system. I say that because I've had families of horses that I've followed through generations that tend to have the same type of skin problems.
1: Interesting. Um, Can I add something on that? Yeah, Ab- Just, I, absolutely. I, I uh, would agree everything with Dr. White said. The other thing when it comes to breeds of horses more susceptible to tumors is it depends also on the tumor type. So. Uh, other tumors, I, I see plenty of uh, squamous cell carcinoma around the eye, and that's definitely breed related to what they call color dilute breeds, or Appaloosas, Belgians, and draft horses that don't have as much color or pigment around their eye where they are more sensitive to that, which is a sunlight-initiated tumor. So. I'd say certain breeds of horses are definitely more susceptible to sarcoids than melanomas, but when, when you're also talking about other tumors like squamous cell carcinoma, for sure the, uh, there is a, a breed predisposition.
0: And you or any
2: horse, or any horse that has unpigmented skin, pink skin, uh, where the hair is thin, are susceptible to squamous cell carcinomas.
0: Yeah, and Dr. Levine, you mentioned, mentioned Belgians, which have that um, sorrel coat color with a light mane and tail, and halflingers, I have some experience with halflingers having squamous cell carcinomas in their eyes, too, and, and my understanding from, from my vet was that uh, the halflingers, too, have um, are more likely to, to get the squamous cell carcinomas. So uh,
1: they, they, they're definitely on that list.
0: Yeah. So what recommendations do you have for those horses? Then, is it as simple as putting a fly mask on them to try to protect them from from the sun?
1: Uh, And sunscreen, as silly as it sounds.
2: And I want to say that the best sunscreen is a zinc oxide based sunscreen um, and not some of the human ones, which can be very irritating to human skin, and some of them are very irritating to horse skin, so a zinc oxide-based sunscreen. And there are actually a couple of horse sunscreens out there now. Mm -hmm. Kinetic makes one your sponsor.
0: Yes, (laughs) I was just thinking that. I know they do. have a good one. because go. I, I have a, a bald-faced quarter horse that, that uses it on his nose. So, um, Dr. Levine, our next question is for you, and it's from Liz in Arizona, and she wants to know if there are any new treatments available for melanomas in horses.
1: Uh, there are. So, um, again, when you're talking about the actual treatment of melanomas and you could list uh, a dozen of different treatments, it usually means that none of them work Uh great, but there's new research out there now. Uh, There's been uh, another autologous vaccine that uh, was developed many years ago uh, that I have uh, used over the years, and there's two new vaccines out there. There's a melanoma vaccine designed for dogs called Oncept, which has been used recently uh, for melanomas. Uh, It's fairly expensive, and the research is still young in it. But that same group is developing, and it's not quite at the market yet. I think they're another year or two out, but a horse melanoma vaccine, and they're in clinical trials with that now. So I've been chomping at the bit to get a hold of a sample of it. Uh, But these are vaccinations, again, trying to get the horse's immune system to attack melanoma cells. Uh, Besides that, there's also been pretty good advances not only in chemotherapeutics, but um, localized radiation therapy uh, for various tumors. So I'd say that when you're talking about melanoma, there's exciting stuff coming out on the melanoma vaccines that are out there, but it's it's still early. We're still a couple years away, and then once it comes out, you're another couple years away before you have some good science behind it.
0: Yeah, I uh, know a woman who breeds Andalusian horses and has a gray stallion, and she's very excited about the prospects of having a vaccine because she has beautiful she horses. She may not like it when she
1: sees the price. <laughs> <laughs> they're very well, nice horses. He, he,
2: <laughs> the other thing is, and when we talk about these vaccines for tumors, you have to realize they're not like vaccines for tetanus and West Nile virus where you give them... Uh, in advance of the disease so that the disease never gets started. The vaccines uh, in particular that are developed and are being developed for melanomas are agents that um, are asking the immune, they are putting in um, DNA um, of a tyrosinase uh, enzyme which is important in tumor growth that is slightly altered and tagged to the melanoma cells. That's the autologous part that Dr. Levine was talking about. And then they in turn attack the tumor. So it is something that you do after the tumor has developed and not before. I just wanted to make that, that very clear. The onset dog uh, vaccine has been used in horses. Um, the jury is still out. Um, there has been anecdotal reports, we have listeners that veterinarians talk to each other about different things, and there are um, reports that in some few horses on Oncept, the tumors actually grow more aggressively. So the science is not all done yet, as Dr. Levine said.
1: And I have not had a lot of experience with it, I've used it once or twice, but uh, realistically I haven't had a lot of experience with it because the jury is out on whether or not it works or makes them worse, and the cost is, is outside of the majority of uh, my clients' price range. Okay.
2: Yes, the Immune FX autologous vaccine out of the Florida group is, um, I think it's $2,600, and I think you probably have that by the time you buy the injector and give four doses of the onset. So Correct. you know, you're you know, it's 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 in the and that's just for the drug. That's not mm-hmm. anything else. So something I wanted to mention for the old horsemen in the group. Mm-hmm. At one time I was taught, I don't know Dr. Levine is a lot younger, but at one time it was thought that you shouldn't surgically remove melanomas because quote-unquote, you would make them angry and they would then become malignant. And I think that has been totally debunked. And so um, surgical removal of melanomas that are around the anus and interfering with passage of manure, um, for example, uh, or are in the, uh, you know, in other areas that are accessible, surgery is, um, an option for giving that animal more time, if nothing else.
1: I would agree with that. I mean, a lot of people are always worried about them becoming malignant, and I don't think our treatment makes them malignant. Sometimes if you, if you don't remove all of them, you can, you know, what they say is activate them to grow a little bit faster, but in my experience, if they're causing a problem and need to be removed, debulking them still makes the most sense.
0: So when you're talking about them quote unquote going malignant can you explain what that would mean and and what that would look like because I th- I I know that I find it confusing talking about equine cancer because I hear you know, you mentioned with melanoma you think of melanoma in a human and and it's very scary where uh you know I'm in a barn that has lots of gray horses and you know they have melanomas and you know they're monitored and um, but it it's not necessarily a, a immediate death sentence for the horse. So Dr. White, can you touch on that a little bit? What it means when you say something goes malignant?
2: When when you have a malignant tumor that is as capable of metastasis or spreading throughout the body. And there are melanomas in horses that do become Um, malignant and the tumor spreads throughout the body usually like cirrhosis surfaces of internal organs like the spleen or the lung or the kidney but they can go anywhere I've had a couple of horses that ended up with melanomas inside the brain and the spinal cord Um, years ago there was uh, actually done at Penn looking at is there something Uh, about these tumors when we evaluate them histologically or any changes in clinical or clinical biochemical parameters in the horse that can predict when these tumors are going to aggressively change into a rapidly growing and traveling cell, and the answer is no.
1: Um,
2: But a lot of times, you know, an old gray horse or even... Some of the most dramatic cases I've had, not even at Gray, um, they're presented for weight loss and ill thrift. And you find on ultrasound that they have tumors within the thoracic or abdominal cavity. Mm -hmm. Now down the road there's research that is looking at how to decide um, in a laboratory whether it's a malignant tumor or not. A benign tumor is one that grows and stays right where it is. Doesn't go anywhere. And for the most part, that's what sarcoids are. They're classically described as benign skin tumors, that they don't travel through the body system to other organs. And I, so it depends on who you read, how many of them turn into malignant tumors and how many don't. But our clinical experience is a great number of horses have slow-growing, not rapidly metastasizing melanomas, which is very different from humans, where they tend to metastasize widely and really fast, which is what makes them so scary.
0: Our next question is for you, Dr. Levine, it's from Alex in our live audience, and Alex wants to know uh, if you can advise on the success rates for cisplatin for sarcoids, Do do you have a figure?
1: Well, so it depends on which study, and this is the hard part when you talk about research uh, in horses in general. As Dr. White alluded to, funding is always hard, and then also the number of horses in each study is hard. So the first study in horses on cisplatin said they had a 100% success rate, and everyone was like, yay. Um, but after that, more studies have come out, and it's not quite that high. And it turns out that if you look at the data out there on cisplatin and sarcoids, it has worked the best as the first line of treatment. So cisplatin drastically works worse uh, when you've tried multiple things and then try cisplatin. And that's probably true for most of the tumor types that we have is that if the first thing works, it's gonna work better than if you tried multiple things and then try it. But probably if you look at it now, depending again on the size of the sarcoid, how invasive it is locally, how many there are, Cisplatin has been shown to be very effective in like the 80-plus percent for single, small sarcoids. When you get up to multiple sarcoids, its efficacy goes down. When you get up to larger sarcoids, it goes down as well. I don't know if that helps and if that answered the question.
2: And the other, the, and it's, that is very well said. The other thing is um, all cisplatin is not created equal. The, the papers that talk about the great success, we're using a concentration of the cisplatin that's no longer available. Um, if you're not, if you're using it, you need to use it in a an emulsion in an oil because aqueous cisplatin is dispersed out of the tissue really fast, and the reason for the oil or the reason for the beads is to hold that cisplatin in place over a prolonged period of time so it has a chance to work. Um, and that, you know, it, it gets back to the art, you know, in, in, in one paper, it says it's 80% successful. That may not be the case for every single person that, that tries it. it. There's a learning curve as well as all those other influencing factors. And that's, that's kind of the problem with this tumor, then there are probably 15 legitimate ways to try and do something about them. Um, You can't do it in sound bites. That might be more than, ought to be digested, but I I mean, it's, and the other thing about cisplatin is it's a cumulative chemotherapeutic drug, and so when using it, you have to be very careful. The humans handling the drug have to be very careful um, because of its cumulative effect.
0: We have a follow-up question to our earlier discussion about squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, Dr. Levine, Stacy M. is listening live, and she wants to know if there are any new treatments available for squamous cell carcinoma in the eye.
1: Uh, In the eye. So the hard part with squamous cell carcinoma when you're talking about the eye is how invasive it is and how quickly you caught it. So oftentimes you'll see it first in the third eyelid. Uh, which is what you know protects the eye when the horse uh, closes it. And that can be surgically removed, but squamous cell carcinoma can be sneaky and oftentimes it can spread in the eye. And there are various treatments out there uh, that are being used now with uh, chemical photoablation, so injectable, basically a dye that you inject into tumor cells Uh, It gets picked up by the tumor cells, and then when shown a light, it will kill the cells. That's some of the stuff that's being done now in the human side that we've dabbed with a little bit, uh, as well as various chemotherapeutics that you could use to try to slow down squamous cell carcinoma. Unfortunately, with advanced squamous cell carcinoma, oftentimes what we end up doing is uh, removing the eye and the tissue around it to remove the whole tumor to keep it from spreading to the bones around the skull. Uh, and along the face. So, squamous cell carcinoma, when caught early, can be cured with surgical removal, but when caught late, uh, sometimes you're talking about a, a very aggressive removal of the eye and the surrounding tissues.
2: The early, the early ones that involve the eyeball, you know, the conjunctiva or um, the limbus where the sclera joins the clear part of the cornea, mitomycin C is a topical. Uh, agent, which has shown uh, actually uh, it's been very helpful in quite a lot of cases. The photodynamic therapy that uh, Dr. Levine referred to, I know at Texas A&M they do a lot of it and it's very successful, but it's right up there with the vaccines for melanomas. It's a very expensive treatment, very and, successful. And,
1: and, and very, very challenging and expensive to even have the equipment. There's a huge learning curve with that
2: yeah so you know a horse would have to go to a to a f- referral center with experience. This gets back to everything we're talking about isn't equal in everybody's hands. You have to have some some uh, some expertise and then I imagine you still have uh, beta radiation probes at Penn um, we do,
1: we don't anymore and instead actually we're moving to instead of the beta radiation, which used to be a probe you put in there is actually now. Uh, Electrical radiation, which is a you know radiography-generated radiation, local brachytherapy.
2: Right. Um, So there are there are a number of things that can be done, and as Dr. Levine referred, um, the longer you wait, and the bigger and more invasive it is, the harder it is to deal with.
1: Um, And when you do have squamous cell carcinoma. on the limbus or cornea, I could tell you that surgical removal of those uh, can definitely be done with combination of mitomycin C, but that should really be done by someone with experience with ocular surgery, either you know a, a surgeon or an ophthalmologic surgeon uh, should really be when they're talking about corneal uh, squamous cell carcinoma. <laughs>
0: Dr. White, during registration for this event, we got a lot of questions about sarcoid treatments, um, asking about um, frankincense oil, turmeric, um, and some other uh, options uh, that, that are on the market. Uh, we have a live question from Chris, and she wants to know if there are any quote-unquote natural treatments that are showing to be effective against sarcoids.
2: Um, the, you know, I, I, you have to sort of define what a natural treatment is. Uh, for example, um, and, and Crest toothpaste was in there, I believe, too, and that one's an easy one because uh, toothpaste today contain fluoride, which is a heavy metal, and if you put heavy metals on the top of any um, particularly open, um, uh, excoriated cells, you know, they, they stop those cells they kill the cells and they stop them from proliferating. It's the uh, an old treatment was heavy metal use on on proud flesh. As far as other topical agents such as frankincense, that was initially looked at by Martin Fur at Virginia Tech uh, quite a number of years ago, um, but it just fell off the landscape. And I think the reason is that when you try to get down and use some controlled studies of it on known tumors that have been biopsied, that it didn't show um, effectiveness. Um, I don't know about turmeric. I would like to say that there are a number of sarcoids that um, 10% of all of them um, in the literature have been reported to regress on their own. And so you have to wonder if what you're doing has actually had a cause and effect of two events occurring at the same time. Um, people have put anything and everything you can think of on sarcoids, and none of them have risen through the ranks of being scientifically evaluated to be effective in that 60 to 80 or greater percent. I think that's the best way to say it. I do think it's possible with some uh, caustic or necrotizing agents to cause as much or more harm than you are good, Uh, so you have to be very careful. And I assume that Chris is referring to natural ingredients as being benign topical agents that don't hurt anything. You could argue that exterior is a natural treatment because it's zinc chloride and a derivative blood root. Blood root's a plant. Zinc chloride is a... Chemical that exists um, but it is a very uh, caustic agent and that's how it gets rid of sarcoids because it causes cell death uh, and you can do a lot of harm with Xterra as well as have some resolution of some sarcoids. So that's a long answer to say not that I know of. Dr. Levine.
1: Well, I'd say the autologous vaccination is natural because you're taking the natural product and using it against it. But I always tell people when they're like, can I use something natural? I'm like, well, you know, you know poison ivy is natural, but I wouldn't wipe it on my skin. Um, you know, cobra venom is natural, but I, I wouldn't inject it into myself. So when it comes to a lot of the natural compounds out there, there's not a lot of research that goes into them. And when the research does go into them, uh, it don't oftentimes pan out. they it doesn't pan out and i've seen everything wiped on sarcoids and i've seen everything wiped on wounds you know to go that far and everyone claims you know their thing works but what i like to see is is actual numbers in, in controlled research environments with unbiased people doing it and oftentimes that stuff doesn't pan out and if it did we would all be excited and have something to choose. But
0: Um, We have a question from our live audience for you, Dr. White. It's from Pat, and Pat wants to know if there are any nutritional considerations or diet recommendations for horses that are prone to tumors. Uh, Cindy is also listening live, and she wants to know if you have any recommendations for supporting a horse's immune system to maybe help them fight off these tumors. Dr. White?
2: I think if you have a very well-balanced diet, and I think the best way to do that, if there's any question, is to work with a nutritionist that that is trained in equine nutrition. Um, I deal with an awful lot of inflammatory skin diseases in which we're trying to decrease inflammation, and that's where the one supplement that's been shown to be helpful is the omega-3s. as you know, there are some immune-stimulating products on the market that are injectable. And they have had various, um, and they're used when you're trying to treat a, a tumor of some kind. And they, they have had um, uh, some effect on in, of different tumors. And the one I'm thinking of is the old regressant. Which has now become immunocytin and is marketed for dog mammary tumors. Used to be very effective in sarcoids. But as far as a diet with a nutritional supplement, um, as they tell us in human medicine, the very best thing you can do is to make sure that all the elements in the normal diet are there. And the thing that I worry about is when people have a variety of supplements that they are adding to a commercial diet, um, then you may have things that are out of balance. And very rarely do people, when they're analyzing a diet, look at the hay, at the concentrate, whether or not it's a commercial mix, what's in that commercial mix, and then all the different supplements that are added. So um, I'm dodging the question a bit, but There isn't a supplement out there that you're going to give a horse that is going to make their immune system something that the genetic makeup is not there for.
0: Um, Dr. Levine, we have a question from our live audience. Lori has a gray quarter horse that is rapidly growing melanomas on a sheath. Corvette says that uh, they are on the inside as well, plus around the anus. Now the horse has a lump on his throat and is coughing. Is it possible that it has spread to the horse's respiratory tract? Um, and she has a follow-up to that question: Is when do you know that it's time to euthanize your horse that has melanomas?
1: Okay, um, I will tackle it in parts. So. Melanoma is often in the perineal and prepucial area, but the other place where it's often found is in the guttural pouches uh, around the throat and in the lymph node chains kind of around the throat in the throat latch, and they can also travel down uh, in the jugular groove down the neck lymph node chains as well. Um, So it would not be surprising to me if the lump that they're feeling is also a melanoma, and if the horse had developed a cough, it would be worthwhile having a veterinarian look Scoping the upper airway looking in there to see if there's melanomas if there's something else causing the cough because it may just The lump may be there as a melanoma oftentimes horses will have melanomas in that area Which are not causing a problem and the ones that are in that area are the most difficult to treat so oftentimes we don't treat those The ones in the prepuce and anus I'd say should be treated especially in an older horse if they're causing problems with defecation and urination I see plenty of melanomas in that area where the horse is passing feces fine and is healthy and in that case in a 20 something year old horse that's not having any clinical signs I wouldn't rush to need to do surgery on that if they've been growing slowly they've been there for a long time and the horse is otherwise healthy the harder question is when is it the right time to euthanize your horse is a very personal question and it's something that veterinarians deal with every day and something that's always helped me is I usually tell people to make a list of things that their horse or dog or anything enjoys very much, whether it be going out for walks or this or eating and things like that. And when more of those things your horse can't do than can do, it's telling you that their quality of life is diminishing. If your horse is having a lot of trouble defecating uh, and it's not surgically removable, you know, is it time? Uh, It's a very personal choice. And it's something that, you know, you, your veterinarian, your trainer, everyone that's with you can help you decide on, but it's something you have to be comfortable in knowing that you we have the ability in our profession to ease suffering in horses who are prey animals and don't really understand what's going on, if that's helpful at all. Dr. White, I don't know if you have another opinion on that.
2: Uh, yes, and I always tell people that uh, I think you've very well said that to consider the animal's quality of life, Uh, as the most important thing. And if it, horses that have melanomas associated with the parotid glands or the guttural pouches or the lymph nodes and have them around the perineal area and have them uh, in their sheath, very often those horses also have internal tumors. Um, And one of the things that you'll see um, is weight loss in those horses, just like you see weight loss in people with cancer. So that's another another indication, despite their diet, they're losing weight or despite their appetite. Um, this can tell you a little bit about the quality of life.
0: Um, Dr. White, we have a question from... Uh, our registration questions, and, and it's a very practical question. Anne in Florida wants to know how to protect sarcoids and melanomas that are in places where blankets or tack might rub on them. What recommendations do you give your, your clients? Um,
2: I think that if you've got uh, blankets, I, I'm trying to think where they would be rubbing, anywhere on sarcoids or tacks. As far as having to use that blanket or having to use that piece of tack, probably I think that uh, true wool sheepskin, not the synthetic fleece, but the true wool washable uh, sheepskin uh, over an area like an occult or varicose warty looking sarcoid um, is helpful. If the um, if the tumors are open, you know, if they're draining melanomas that drain the black necrotic tissue, or if they're excoriated or um, granulating looking uh, uh, sarcoids, then I think you're in a position where you're gonna have to come up ways, uh, with ways to cover those and I think TAC in particular is probably not indicated over anything that's an open wound. But you may be able to use, um, I actually had this in my own horse. He had a, he had an occult sarcoid right across where the crown piece of the bridle or the halter went. And, uh, I, that's what I did. I used the true wool sheepskin and it prevented it from being further irritated to the point that it became a wound in a blanket situation you may be able to um, sew pieces of the, the washable wool true wool um, sheepskin in areas that so you don't have rubbing if it's around the collar of the blanket or at the chest piece of the of, of the blanket it's what I'm thinking about
0: and Dr. Levine, when then is it an option to surgically remove these tumors if they're in the way of the tack or or blankets?
1: It's probably one of the most common reasons why smaller tumors are removed is uh, I see a lot of small tumors that will do uh, excisional biopsies, remove them and biopsy them at the same time, and oftentimes it's in the way of a girth or uh, rubbing between the legs, and it's uh, oftentimes on, on those small ones where we could, uh, remove them fully, let the area heal, um, and then you know, treat if there's underlying tumor left there with you know, adjunctive chemotherapeutics. Usually it can be curative. So probably one of the most common reasons why I'll do surgery is um, tumors, whether they be sarcoids or melanomas, that are interfering, getting rubbed and opening back open. And So I think it's a reasonable uh, reason for a surgical removal of those tumors if they're interfering with the horse's daily routine.
0: Well, we are actually out of time for this evening, uh, and my helper who is sorting through questions says that there's still 35 questions from our live audience that we haven't gotten to (laughs) tonight, Um, but it was a great conversation for everyone who's listening. If your question didn't get answered, I recommend going to that resource that I mentioned at the beginning of the hour, thehorse.com Uh, slash skin tumors. Uh, also look at uh, some of Dr. Levine's research that's on the horse. We have lots of resources on there. Um, Or go ahead and send them in. We're always uh, looking for questions to answer in both the magazine and online. And if you have photos, because I know these are very visual type things, if you have photos that you want to send to us, we're happy to get those and and see if we can help get some answers for you. Before we close, those out. Um, Dr. Levine and Dr. White, uh, let's start with Dr. Levine. Do you have any closing thoughts um, for our audience?
1: No, I hope everyone enjoyed and we got some questions answered. Just uh, my closing conclusions would be, don't forget that um, tumors should be biopsied by your veterinarian to see what they are. Uh, don't ever always believe what, uh, <laughs> what the claims of some you know supplement or cream says. And uh, you know, it's a partnership between you and your veterinarian to get the right diagnosis of what the tumors are and, and make a treatment plan that works for you and your horse.
0: Okay. And Dr.
2: Wei? I think that was very well said. And the follow-up to that, I think, is if you have a definitive diagnosis and a treatment plan and the tumor is removed surgically or resolves with other therapy, don't forget to... Um, have your veterinarian regularly recheck the animal to be sure that it doesn't reoccur because you'll want to start uh, therapy sooner rather than later in reoccurrence.
0: Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have this evening. I want to thank Dr. Levine and Dr. White for joining us and, and answering all these great questions. I want to thank our sponsor, Kinetic Vet, who brought this uh to everyone tonight for free. Uh, And finally, thank you to everyone who submitted your questions, both during registration and while listening live. Next month, uh, join us. Uh, We're going to be talking about the science behind supplements. And I know that's going to be a really interesting and popular topic uh, with all of you who like to join our Ask the Horse lives. Until Until then, from all of us at the horse, have a great evening.